told me that she is the uh she holds the record for being the uh wait, let me put it right. she holds the record for having been on television more times more hours than any other performer in its entire history of the industry she is just wonderful and terrific and i'm so glad to have her to visit us again miss lucille ball <laughs> Isn't that what, don't you feel great when that happens? Yes, that's, that's very gratifying. Oh, oh. See, I didn't realize you were on more times, hours than anybody else. I didn't either until I heard you say it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take your word for it. Do you ever want to go back again? Do you ever miss the, the regimentation? The, Honey, I miss it, it every day of my life, but I can't go back. Uh, you can't top what we've done, 25 years or more, and you can't go back. Not go back, but go forward. Do you ever say, gee, I'd like to, let's get another show together. Let's do another sitcom. No, I wouldn't try to top what we did. We had it too good. And we were in early, real early. <laughs> and kind of made up our own rules as we went along, you know. And uh, no, I wouldn't try to top it. I like to work. I miss not working. And I miss Viv very much and Bill. And the whole show, the whole arena I miss. But you don't go back. So what do you do? Give us a typical Lucille Ball day. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> I do a lot of things, but I couldn't give you a typical day. Uh, I'm traveling a lot now, and um, I'm pushing Stone Pillow at the moment, so yeah. I'm really going. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Why did you wait so long to do a dramatic role? I don't know. You know? Uh, uh, because I didn't get a script that I liked. The Scripts are kind of scroungy, you know. Yeah. And I, I had a, you know, an image of sorts of, uh, that I personally liked, and I certainly don't want to just go out and do anything with four-letter words and things that I don't dig. I took this script because I I wanted to work with a great director, and I found one, George Schaefer, and Mr. Schaefer came up with this subject. And I thought, well, this is sticking my neck out. And I don't know what my fans will think, but I have to grow up sometime. And I have to, uh, and at least this doesn't have anything that I object to. And it's uh, not a cause celeb, but it's, it's something close to my heart. I have compassion for yeah. but it's, I didn't start it out as a, you know, they, did you did you get a chance with like some actresses, you know, the, the method? They go and they study the bag women and they become a bag woman. I mean, did you did you do anything like that? Did you No, I found it very easy to be a bag woman. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you ever Joan, if you ever want to go around New York incognito, that's it. Just take Just off be your a bag. bag woman. Nobody looks at you. Nobody recognized you when you were your costume? Uh, we were out thirty three days on the streets of New York. Not one person stopped in front and said, you're Lucy, aren't you? Not one person. Unbelievable. What did and you I sat in one spot for 15, 20 minutes, an hour and a half. Not one person. They, they have a way of not seeing bag women. Now, or the men, you know, the winos, the weirdos, or the bag men. Uh, you can go any place you want except in to eat or um, into a <laughs> restaurant. Did you ever try that? Yes, I forgot really? one day. Yeah, I forgot the, how I looked. And I said, oh, let's go to that place. I've heard about that. And I went and they wouldn't let me in. <laughs> and did you say, finally, I'm Lucille Ball? No, I went. I left. That's I wasn't going to try to prove it. 
With the makeup I had on, I, I couldn't prove it. <laughs> well, I, you don't think I did it without makeup? <laughs> For God's sake. Yeah. You're always so glamorous, and your hair is always... You, know, you think of Lucille Boy, you always red hair. First of all, do people call you Lucille or Lucy? Lucy. Lucy. I hope. Yeah. No, what was your real name? Lucille. So, you didn't... And Lucille... Lucille Ball? You don't think I'd take that name. I wouldn't pick well, it. No, I wouldn't either. The one I picked was Diane Belmont. Oh, okay. And how... When I was a model. And there are people today say, why did you change your name to Lucille Ball? And I have to tell them that that, you know, I never was Diane Belmont on 7th Avenue when I was a model. And did it help you by the, the name Diane Belmont? Didn't help me a bit, but... Uh, did you act differently when you, like you gave yourself a fantasy? Well, name? I gave myself a, a fantasy and I said I was from Montana and I sent to Montana and I got brochures and I knew more about Montana, Anaconda, and Butte than people that lived there. <laughs> really, really. We'll be right back at this message of interest, so please stay tuned. Yes. Back. Talking with Lucille Ball. November 5th. Stone Pillow, right? November 5th, Stone Pillow. And you lost... Nine o'clock out, out here. Twenty-three pounds doing it. Yeah. <gasps> oh, isn't that wonderful? Oh. Well, up to a point. Oh. I mean, I didn't have to lose, lose that much, but uh, it was terribly hot, and we were supposed to be shooting in the middle of the winter. See, at all And that... I was dressed for grisly February, and it was 98, 99, 100, 102, 105, 107. In one place, it was 122. Oh. Yeah, in a boiler room that we worked in. And with all the clothes and the wig and everything, I lost 23 pounds. Do you have to watch your weight? Well, well no, <laughs> coming you're or going? <laughs> <laughs> you're tall and you've got great legs. You know. do you, Thank do you, you. Do you watch? Did you ever always... I never had to before, but I don't mind losing most of that weight except that it made me ill, and, yeah. uh, you know, I have to put back some, but I don't want to put back the whole 23. You, when you say ill, did you go to a hospital? Yes, I did, and you know I hate hospitals. I was just going to ask you, when, now you're Lucille Ball. You've but... always got your hand up here with IV, and they're taking blood over here. <sighs> but when you come into a hospital, do they just let you be sick, or all the nurses... How the hell do I know? I don't even remember being there. <laughs> Let you be sick? What do you mean? I mean, I had a miscarriage, and oh. I never got to rest. Well, you were in your door, right mind. The door would open, and they'd say, just, just wanted to sneak in and say, yeah. hello, I love you. Yeah, that's happened to me before yeah. when I've had things. That, but I was so sick this time, I don't even remember. When Gary came to see me, I didn't even remember. And how long were you in the hospital? Five days, I think. That's, a lo that's too long. Oh, I guess so. Yeah. Let me ask you, you're, that's, you're a good mother. and um, We know both kids have turned out okay, thank God. And thank a good God. Mother. What was the one thing that used to annoy you about your kids? One thing that annoyed me? Yeah. Well, first of all, the fact that they had to grow up at all. And uh, in the 60s. That was tough. That was tough. That was tough. But uh, I can't remember anything that annoyed me. I was so happy to have them. I had them very late. My first child was I was 39. And uh, I was so happy to have them that I was afraid that I would spoil the hell out of them. But I didn't. Because my mother was around, and she said, hey, 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 that's no way to do it. No, 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 no. if you love them, you don't let them do those things. 
So with the help of my mother, I think I got a good start with them. Yeah, are you spoiling your grandkids now? No, I'm, they're too far away to spoil. And besides, they're cocky. Though is the passing of Joan Rivers. Can her voice really be gone? Funeral services for her will be this Sunday in New York. Remembrances are pouring in from all over the world for this comedy legend. Her family says the 81-year-old died peacefully Thursday in a New York hospital. Summing up a legendary career in comedy, daughter and co-star Melissa Rivers said this in a statement. My mother's greatest joy in life was to make people laugh. Although that is difficult to do right now, I know her final wish would be that we return to laughing soon. Well, as you know, virtually no subject was off limits for Rivers, including her own mortality. Take a listen to this clip now from her final stand-up comedy performance recorded just one day before she ended up in the hospital. How did this thing went out? I am now 81 years old. I could die any second. Any, any, no, 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 no. Don't applaud. I'm not making, I, like that. I could go like that. Do you understand how lucky you would be? Do you understand you would have something to talk Miss Rivers, how are you? You made you made a ton of news right. officiating the wedding in New York yesterday. Is this like a is this like a new uh, cottage uh, career move I for you? I am so excited. Okay. And I should do very well because I don't show. And do you think that the country will see the first the United States will see the first gay president or the first woman president? Well, we already president? have it with Obama. So let's just calm down. Got it. You know Michelle is a trans. I'm sorry. She's a what? A transgender. We all know. Oh my gosh. Oh gosh. Well, I thought we should just pay a little bit of tribute to Joan Rivers for having the guts to say something. Because, you know, transphobia is something that they're shoving down our throat because it can no longer be hidden soon, I guess. And everyone is making rounds with this. line of questioning that happened when being claimed transphobic. Please have a listen. Bridges, you said several times, you've used, you've used a phrase, a- I want to make sure I understand what you mean by it. You've referred to people with a capacity for pregnancy. It, would that be women? Many women, cis women, have the capacity for pregnancy. Many cis women do not have the capacity for pregnancy. Um, there are also trans men who are capable of pregnancy, as well as non-binary people who are capable of pregnancy. So this isn't really a women's rights issue. It's a, it's, we can it's recognize a that this impacts women while also recognizing that it impacts other groups. Those things are not mutually exclusive, Senator Hawley. Oh, so your view is, is that the core of this, this right then is about what? So um, I want to recognize that your line of questioning um, is transphobic, <laughs> um, and it opens up trans people to violence by not recognizing that. Wow, you're saying that I'm opening up people to violence by asking whether or not women are the folks who can have pregnancies? So I'm one, I want to note that one out of five transgender uh, persons have attempted suicide. So I think it's important because of my line of questioning because we can't talk about it because denying that trans people exist and pretending not to know that they exist. I'm denying that trans people exist by asking you you if you're talking about women having pregnancies. Do you believe that uh, men can get pregnant? 
No, I don't think. <laughs> so you are denying that trans people exist. Thank and that leads to violence. Is this how you run your classroom? Are students allowed to question you, Absolutely. or are they also treated like this? Where no, you, no, no, they're, they're told that to they're at, opening up people to oh, violence. We have a good time in my class. You should join. Oh, I bet. You might learn a lot. Wow, I, I would learn a lot. I've learned you, a lot. I just know. In this exchange. Absolutely extraordinary. Yep. Um, Sounds like this lady has some white privilege. Wait, you can't say that because she's not white. Get out of here. These are the things that we have in society. It's pretty scary. And, you know, the weirdest thing is that I don't think people realize that it was all planned to do so. All planned to do so. So today we're going to talk about quantum. You're going to see that the devil's greatest trick is convincing people he doesn't exist. So how do we understand what quantum computing and see a lot of people think that they need a lot of servers, right? Oh, you need an army of servers to do the computation because you're just too stupid to do it in your head. You can only count a few numbers at once. You can only multiply a few things at once because you're dumb. You don't understand this stuff. You're stupid. That's the way it is. Oh, the greatest trick ever done. Now, I, I think before I introduce you to that, and maybe this um, video will make sense, but at, at the end of it, but this is one person, one person putting some things together. And you're going to be like, what am I looking at? Now I'm going to advise you that the internet, and I'm going to restate this again, that you are in, the one that you are listening to my voice on, watching these videos, conduct your financial transactions, input your private identifying information, <laughs> is simply an intranet. It is not the internet. Now, there are very few things that are on the real internet. Very few things. And they usually come up with a timestamp that's uh, really bizarre. Now, those that are on the post-quantum system are labeled as, uh, I don't know, initiating their existence on December 31st, 1969. Those that are on the real internet impose their existence on December 32nd, 1969. You guys saw that on Twitch. We saw it together. How my alternate profiles were December 32nd, 1969. And I didn't put that there. Uh, I guess, but you saw it with your own eyes. So what other entities, digital entities, have such timestamps? Now this is quite fascinating. You know, it's really good when you're trying to overcome social awkwardness by people constantly reminding you how socially awkward you are. I appreciate that. Thank you, guys. What am I supposed to do? They're yelling all the time. 
You know, it's really good when you're trying to overcome social awkwardness by people constantly reminding you how socially awkward you are. I appreciate that. Thank you, guys. What am I supposed to do? They're yelling all the time. They're yelling all the time. Guys. What am I supposed Give me a moment. Let me pause it on the right screen so you can see it. YouTube joined 51 years ago, 31.2 million subscribers. At the time of this, it says that YouTube joined on December 31st, 1969. Can you see that? I mean, you could go check. I don't know if it's been obfuscated, but someone actually screen recorded it. All right. Now let's get into the next discussion. So you can, it'll make sense. At the end of this, you'll understand it. And I think the best way to do this is to understand, and we're going to see two different, I guess, explanations. Spelling matters. Spelling does matter, right? The way you spell things indicates its efficacy. Drugs on that boat. It was a hit. A suicide mission to whack out the one guy that could finger Kaiser Sose. So Sose put some thieves to it. Men he knew we could march into certain death. You're saying Sose sent us to kill someone? You're saying Keaton did. Verbal, he left you behind for a reason. Just do what I tell you. If you all knew that Sose could find you anywhere, why did he give you the money to run? He could have used you on the boat. He wanted me to live. <laughs> One time dirty cop without a loyalty in the world finds it in his heart to save a worthless rat cripple. No, sir, why? Edie. I don't buy that reform story for a minute. Even if I did, I certainly don't believe he would send you to protect her. So why? Because he was my friend. No, Verbal. He wasn't your friend. Keaton didn't have friends. What are you doing here? He saved you because he wanted it that way. It was his will. Keaton was Kaiser Sose. No. The kind of man who could wrangle the wills of men like Hockney and McManus. The kind of man who could engineer a police lineup through all these years of contacts at NYPD. The kind of man who could have killed Edie Fillerin. <laughs> She was found yesterday at a hotel in Pennsylvania, shot twice in the head. What do you think about Keaton now, Verbal? Edie? He used all of you to get him on that boat. He couldn't get on alone. He had to pull the trigger himself to make sure he got his man. The one man that could identify him. This is all bullshit. You said you saw him die? Or did you? You had to hide when you first heard the police cars. You said you heard the shot before the fire. But you didn't see him die. I knew him. He would never. He programmed you. He programmed you to tell us just what he wanted you to. He knew we were close. You said it yourself. Where was the political pressure coming from? Why were you being protected? It was Keaton. Immunity was your reward. Why me? Why not Fester and McManus or Hockney? Why me? I'm stupid. I'm a cripple. Why me? Because you're a cripple, Verbal. Because you're stupid. Because you're weaker than them. <laughs> if he's dead, 
If what you say is true, then it won't matter. It was his idea to hit the taxi service in New York, wasn't it? Come on, tell me the truth. It was all key. <laughs> we followed him from the beginning. Yeah. I didn't know. I saw him die. I believe he's dead all right. You're not safe on your own. You think he's... Kaiser Sose? I don't know, Verbal. Kaiser Sose is a shield, or like you said, a spook story. But I know Keaton, and someone is out there pulling strings for you. Stay here and let us protect you. No way. I'm not bait. I post today. You posted 20 minutes ago. Captain Leo wants you out of here ASAP, unless you turn states. I'll take my chances. Thank you. If someone wants to get you, they're going to get you out there. Turn states evidence. You might never see trial. Maybe so. But I'm not a rat, Agent Kuyan. Fucking cops. And just when you think you figured it out, plot twist. I have to sign for these. Okay. One watch, gold. One cigarette lighter, gold. One pack of cigarettes. Thank you. You still got nothing, Dave. I know what I wanted to know about Keaton, which is nothing. He'll have to know how close we came. Kaiser Sose or no Kaiser Sose. If Keaton is alive, he's not coming up again. I'll find him. Waste the time. The room is not a room that doesn't die. What? Nothing. Man, you're a slob. Yeah, but it all has a system, Dave. It makes sense when you look at it right. You gotta, like, stand back from it, you know? You wanna see a real horror show? See my garage. In other words, you gotta stand back and take a look at it. And once you take a step back and take a look at it, uh, you know, like a 40,000-foot view, it all starts to make sense. Thank you. 
tell me every you know, last back when I was in that barbershop quartet in Skokie, Illinois. Where's your head, Agent Kuyun? What we need to do is think. Think back. I'm sure you've heard many tall tales. Bricks Marlin. This isn't right. I just want to tell hear the story. It's all there. And I'm telling it straight, I swear. Some guy in California, his name is Redfoot. The gift from Mr. Soze. Talk to me, Herbal. What about Redfoot? Mr. Redfoot, you're nothing. Using pawns. Big, fat guy. I mean, like, orca fat. I was a lawyer. Myths, legends of Kobayashi. Sir. I've never seen him again. Back when I was picking beans in Guatemala, we used to make fresh coffee. I know you thought he was a good man. I know he was good. Every last detail. Strangest thing. How do you shoot the devil in the back? This altar is protected from up on high by the prince. And tell me every last What about detail. a pretzel, man? What's your story? There was a lawyer. What lawyer, Verbal? I am Mr. Kobayashi. 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 Tell me every last detail. I work for Kaiser Soze. Convince me. Convince me. Convince me. Convince me. Every creeping scumbag that works the street for a living will know the name of Verbal Kent. The cripple, did you see him? The cripple, which way did he go? Oh, he, he went out that way. I know you know something. I know you're not smarter telling you say something. I'm smarter than you. And I'm going to find out what I want to know, whether you like it or not. So a cop, the explanation is never that You know what I'm getting at, Verbal, simple. the truth. Come on, Verbal, no who do you think you're the street? No arch criminal at all. Somebody with power. There was somebody who was capable of dragging us to New York. You think I a this close to getting cut and sticks his head out? You get no guys in me. Because you're stupid, Verbal. Because you're Kaiser a cripple. Sose. What I want to know is who's the gimp. You know, you know the whole fucking time. Kaiser Sose. If he comes up for any reason, get rid of me. But I'm sure Keaton is dead. I can't feel my legs, Kaiser. First thing I learned on the job, you know what it was? How to spot a murderer. You tell me you got the cripple in there from New York. Yeah. He mentioned Kaiser Sose. Who? After that, my guess is you'll never hear from him again. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And like that, he's gone. And this is why everybody focuses on usual suspects. All the usual suspects. The same names, the same family lines, the same this. Keeping you chasing your tail. When the real trick comes from people that really don't exist. Because people that don't exist can show you what really does. So in order to understand how the usual suspects give you real-life problems, real-life murders, real-life fraud, real-life control, real-life wars, real-life everything, the trick is, because they failed to deploy the relay, huh? That greed monster takes over you. It's almost as if your soul is eternally hungry for something. Is it money? Is it fame? What is it that you really want? Those demons can grab a hold of you. And unfortunately, 
for those that are evil. That, that, my friends, is a weapon that should always be used. When you know someone's deep desire, which usually is power, you can amplify that and delay destruction. In fact, rotten fruits, you do not pick off a tree. I remember when I was a child and I was in Greece in the summer, we have olive groves. And my grandfather would take me and all my cousins to go and rake the olives from the branches. And it would be like a whole day thing uh, over a couple of weeks. And I remember him telling me, don't try to take down the fruit from that tree, the olives. I said, why? Because those need to fall themselves. The rotten fruit falls all by itself. There's no point in giving it a push. So therefore, if you delay evil by amplifying its ego, in the sense of you want more power, if you deploy this now, you won't have enough. And evil will say, just do it. Just do it. No, no, no. It's a lot more fun if you do it like this. You want to uh, control every single aspect. Do it like this instead. See, they should have deployed the relay. They would have deployed it, but they didn't. They did not. And therefore, they remained on the branches. And I guess it's been almost, it's over half a century. I think it's time that the rotten fruit falls. And this is exactly what you're seeing. But what does this have to do with quantum computing? Well, here's where you're going to understand exactly what the biggest trick is. So in order to understand what quantum computing is, you have to understand how people protect your information in the digital sphere. See, by allowing them to exercise power, to enjoy that, I guess, heightened sense of control, proposed to the usual suspects over 50 years ago, you are now able to understand it. Sometimes things have to be a certain way because if they don't, then you cannot know. Could you imagine having a relay deployed over 50 years ago? Your life would be online. Those uh, passive aggressive exchanges of trying to redefine biology for the sake of not hurting someone's feelings and trying to change science would have been normal for you. You would have never seen just how enslaved you really are. Oh, that Babylon. She rode on that horse, that whore, right? 
Let's explain cryptography. You don't have to be a mathematician to understand this. In fact, the video I'm going to show you is a teacher. I think he's in Australia, high school math teacher. I want you to understand the backbone of the whole cyber net, the whole internet, the whole one is based on something called RSA encryption. Now, a lot of you understand AES encryption because that's the security you have. Oh, it's so encrypted and it's so safe. And then in order to crack any encryption, they give you this false idea that you need a lot of servers to do this complex mathematics that you just can't wrap around your head because you're just too stupid and you can't fathom it. And there are people that are delving into research to solve this and create this. I'm sorry, but you cannot create something that is not yours. You cannot reverse engineer something that is not yours. It simply is. So let's take a quick little course. And this is explained fantastically. We're not going to get into the AES encryption. You know, the one they use for the AER system globally with your health information, DNA information, banking information, educational information, and everything else in between. Let's talk about RSA. This with actual, how, how the RSA, RSA system, system would actually work, with actual numbers, with an actual like long message and all that kind of thing. And we could do it with computers. I could show you how to do it. But I thought, no, no, I actually want you to see the maths of what's going on. So I've picked simple, simple things like a one letter message. Okay. So forgive me for that. Anish. Does that say we're Okay. Yeah. So, so now let me start. So the RSA crypto system, right? RSA stands for these three names of Rivest. That's a V. Rivest, Shamir. Adelman, these guys were geniuses, okay? And you'll see why as you as the method unfolds. Uh, but no one, no one remembers their names, so we just call it RSA, okay? The RSA crypto system, it works like so. What you need is an encryption pair of numbers, okay? And this is kind of like the pair of locks. That, sorry, not the pair of locks. The pair of numbers is the lock that I hand out to everyone, okay? So I, I publish this pair of numbers, Okay? And I say, look, you want to send me, you want to send me any message you like, okay? Use this, this lock, right, to lock up your message, and then I'll be able to decipher it, and only I will be able to decipher it. So just as an example, suppose you want to, very secretive, you want to send me the letter B. Okay, it's like, whoa, mind blown, right? So how do we do this? Let me show you the maths of it. It's deceptively simple, but you do need to remember a little bit about what we did with modular arithmetic under the Caesar cipher. I promise it won't be that hard. Okay. So here's what we're going to do. First step, this is, this is text, but we need to deal with numbers, right? So I'll convert this to a number, okay? So numerically, like we can decide on whatever, but I suppose we would call it two, wouldn't we? Okay. So two, that's the actual, that's the text, the number we're going to send. Okay. Now I want to, um, I want to use the cipher on this thing, okay? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this number, two, 
I'm going to raise it to the first power, the power of the first number, I should have said, right? So to the power of five, and then I'm going to say mod the second number. Okay, this is what I'm going to calculate. This is how I'm using the numbers. So for instance, if you sent the letter C, which would be three, then what you would calculate is three to the power of five mod 14. Okay, let's just quickly do this because the numbers are okay. This is how I chose them, right? To the power of five, that's 32, good, right? Mod 14. Now, do you remember what mod means? Modular arithmetic, right? This number 14 is called the modulus. What I want is the remainder that I get that's left after I divide 32 by 14, okay? So, of course, the biggest number, the biggest multiple of 14 you can fit into this is 28, and so what's left over is four. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So that's a four mod 14. Okay. So now four, this is my ciphertext. Okay. So the ciphertext, my encrypted message, okay, will be four, which is D, I guess. Okay. <coughs> so that's what you send to me, right? And now it's a secret. I, the original message is, is lost. How do I decipher this? Okay. Well, you, you don't use this pair of numbers, okay? I have the um, I have the key, right? The key is related to this. The second number, the 14, is the same. But for decryption, the first number is different, right? So in some senses, this first number, it's the secret. It's the, it's the key. If you find it out, you can decipher everything that comes to me, okay? So in this case, the decryption key is 1114. Like I said, this number here, the modulus, is the same. But this number here, this one is the key, right? Okay. Now, what do I do with this? Well, I'm going to go through the same process, but I'm going to use this pair of numbers instead of this pair of numbers, okay? I take your ciphertext, right, which was the letter D, and I'm going to go through this whole process again. I have to convert it to a number, which is 4, okay? Then I raise it to this power, and I say mod 14, Okay, now, to the power of five, you could do that in your head, but four to the power of 11, maybe not. So get your calculator out. Ah, uh, yes, well, how do you get 11? I'll get to that, but the point is, I know what it is and you don't. That's part of the point that you can't just, you can't just see, oh yeah, five means 11, right? The point is that no one can work it out. In fact, it's, I'll show you, I'll tell you how hard it is to work out in the end. Okay. So I have this key. Yeah. No, no. And you also say, why? If it was always going to be 11, it'd be a pretty lousy decryption method. All right, so you got your calculator there now, yeah? So the first thing you do, the first thing you do is four to the power of 11. Okay, four to the power of 11. Okay, now then you get out this monstrous number. Okay, and this is mod 14. Okay, mod 14. So unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, um, our calculators don't have a mod button on there. Okay, so I will short sh show you a sort of um, quick and dirty shortcut that will work out what this number is. And actually part of your homework, I'm going to make a start here so that I don't forget it. Part of your homework in a post uh, after this lesson is to explain what I'm about to do. So you want to take note of what I do fairly carefully, okay? Why does what I do, what is, why is what I will do, why does it work? 
And it introduces, there's a problem with the method. It's easy to solve, but I want you to work out, number one, why does it work? Number two, why does it introduce this problem? It's a strange kind of problem. All right, so here's what we're going to do. Remember, this is about remainders, right, and division, all that kind of thing. So the first thing I'll do is I'll, I'll take that number, which is on my display, and I'll divide by the modulus 14. So you divide by 14, um, and it'll give you like a – mine gives you a fraction, but I want the decimal, okay? So this shows me 2995931429, blah, 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 blah. Okay, so I see that number, okay? Now, what I want to do is just mentally take note of the integer part of that number, which is 299593, okay? So what I'm going to do is, I actually should have put that off on the side, but I'm running out of space, so anyway. What I'm going to do is I'm going to subtract the integer part from the whole number, okay? So on my calculator, with this on the display, I say minus 299593, okay? And what's left is a decimal. In fact, it's this decimal. Okay. Now, once I've got that decimal there, I want to multiply back by this modulus, 14. Okay. If I multiply by 14, what my calculator then says is, where am I going to put this? My calculator then says this. And there's an 8 or a couple of 8s on the end. Okay. Now, what number is this close to? 2. two. So this is 2 mod 14. Okay. Let me just remind you what's going to go in that homework person. Number one, why does this work? It's not that, that's not the hard part, okay? Why does this spit out the correct, this is called the residue, what's left over, okay? Why does that work? And secondly, why does it do this? Hmm. You think about it. You can work it out, okay? That's, that's going to go into your homework. If you have an answer. No, there's an easy way to do it. I know there's an easy way. I, this is a particular way that it would be for all of us to follow. Yeah, okay, all right. So, yep. Yeah, why doesn't it give us two? Why doesn't it give us two? Because it should give us two. Okay. So now, have a look. What just happened? I finished the process. The process is done. I started with your cipher text. You sent me D, right? And so I went through this process. And at the end, I end up with this, which is your original text. B. And I have deciphered it. It worked. And you can go ahead and you can test out. What you need is... You need to encrypt it like this and then decipher it with this using this interesting combination of the power and this modular arithmetic. So in other words, the whole internet is based on that premise. I publish keys and they're not going to be something simple like 5 and 14, right? It's going to be higher order math you know, a lot more complex because I want to hide it, right? Has to be higher order. But the whole internet that all of you dabble in, that all this information is transferred through, your phones, your computers, your emails, diplomatic cables, encrypted messaging apps, your iClouds, your Google Clouds, you name it. You can't think of a world outside of the internet. It's like me telling you, close your eyes. Picture the universe. You see all the stars and the planets that you've been told exist. Now, one by one, take out the planets and take out the stars. What are you left with? 
a vast sea of nothingness that's black. Well, try to take out the black. Lift it up. Try to see what's there. You can't because you can't fathom a world outside of your world. Well, this is what quantum computing is. Your internet sits in a world within a world. Cyberspace is a governed space. Space is ungoverned. Let me take it another way. Let's think of, hmm, you know, is this the good explanation? Mm, Trying to think. Let's go to IBM. Let's show you, right? Now, what they tell you quantum computing is. Now, you saw that simple explanation of RSA encryption, which is the backbone of every single thing on the internet, which all relies on you simply being able to crack the private key, but not the mod part, just the beginning. Now, you would think there are infinite numbers. Therefore, it can be anything. And that is on the presumption that mathematics has no patterns. If mathematics don't have patterns, then indeed it would be impossible. But if there's a pattern, which means there's a foundation, which means it's simply space, not cyberspace, then everything is hackable. In other words, everything you do online is hackable. I do not care how smart you think you are. I do not care how complex your algorithms are. RSA encryption is a facade. And they convince you that it's quite difficult to crack. And they convince you that quantum computing is very difficult. Well, we did see the Mandelbrot. We understand that no matter how many infinite solutions one may have, it always comes back to a frequency of pattern. So let's take a look at and see how IBM explains to you what quantum computing is. Maybe if you paid attention to the simplicity of RSA, which I've just told you is the backbone to everything. AES encryption is on top of RSA, right? AES is so easy to crack. But think about it. They've created layers. So you have your actual space. Then you have your cyberspace that is ironclad with RSA encryption. And then you have AES and whatever other, you know, encryption they throw at you to tell you it's secure. Computer can break the, the encryption standards we use today. By finding prime factors of a large integer in just minutes instead of the thousands of years it would take for a classical computer to do. But before you start to panic, while we have real quantum hardware today, it's not quite powerful enough to do that just yet. However, technologies are advancing faster than ever. The cell phones we have today 
are more powerful than the membranes that we use to send people to the moon. And the researchers believe that we will soon entering an era of quantum advantage where quantum computers will be used to accelerate classical computers, just like GPUs. In this video, I'm going to talk about five foundational topics in quantum computer. Superposition, gates, measurement, interference, and entanglement. But before we dive into that, let's first talk about bits. Classical computers use bits, which are like switches that can be a zero or a one. This way of uh, computation has served as well, so well, in fact, that almost all modern computers work this way. However, this approach doesn't solve all the problems that we have today. Problems that can blow up exponentially and would take classical computers decades or more to solve. We already talk about the algorithm we use for encryption. Other types of uh, difficult problems include optimization, chemistry simulation, and machine learning. Now let's talk about our first topic, superposition. Quantum computer um, does not use the simple zero and one bits. Instead, it uses qubits. A qubit can be a zero, a one, or any linear combination of the two. This spectrum of states is what we called a superposition. Our next, next topic is about gates. Similar to classical computers, we use, we, we string together qubits using a construct called gates that can alter the states of qubits in the circuits. For example, we can uh, have a qubit that's at the state of zero. Then we can use the Hadamard gate, or HK for short, to put it in a superposition between zero and one. And of course, you can have multiple qubits with multiple gates in a circuit. For the circuit to be useful, at some point you need to read about its outputs, which brings us to our next topic, measurement. When a qubit is measured, it loses its superposition and collapses into just a simple zero or one. That means an arrow pointing this way does not measure a 0.5. Instead, it has 50% chance of measuring a zero and 50% chance of measuring a one. It is this in-between state that sometimes people say that a qubit can be a zero and a one at the same time. It also means that just a small number of qubits can represent a large amount of information. So our, um, for our next topic, interference, we begin by addressing a common problem, a common question. Why is that quantum computers can outperform classical ones. So if you remember, the, a quantum state is a linear combination of the zero state and the one state. So 
an operation applied to this can be seen as applying to the zero state and the one state, doing two calculations at once. It is this parallel computation that gives quantum its unique advantage. However, as you may recall, when a, when a qubit is measured, it loses its superposition and collapses into zero or one. That means we can only get a single answer instead of all of the answers from this parallel computation. And to make sure the single answer we get is the correct one, quantum gates need to be arranged in a way so that it would um, amplify the correct answer and cancel all the incorrect ones, a process called interference. Now, this leads us to our last topic, entanglement. When qubits are entangled, their states become strongly correlated. That is, uh, changing the state of just one qubit will change the state of another. For example, we can entangle two qubits so that their states have a 50% chance of measuring a 0, 0 and 50% chance of measuring a 1, 1, but never a 0, 1 or a 1, 0. In this case, if we just, if we change just the, the state of one, the other one would also change. So with the pow combined power of superposition, interference, and entanglement, quantum computer can solve things that classical computers simply cannot do today. It can lead to better drug, better drug discovery or um, enhance the stock portfolio or even artificial intelligence. Now we just need to wait for the quantum hardware to catch up. Thanks for watching. If you have any questions, please leave them in the comments oh, below. Because that quantum hardware doesn't exist. It actually does. It's the six inches between your ears. But you know what? It's so weird. <laughs> They've convinced you that you need something inanimate in order to be able to math, to do math that's animate. And if you notice with the entanglement, like she said, one operator needs to be changed. And then the percentage is 50-50. Think of it like tangoing, right? You've got a, four people on the floor, two men, two women, whatever. Say that two men decide that they want a ballroom dance, right? They've now evicted the women choice. Therefore, they will only choose men. Now you already have that, you know, option that it can only be men ballroom dancing. But say from all those four, only one of the women is done. Well, the options are to dance with man A or man B. It's kind of like, depending on what the majority wishes to dance, is what the outcome would be. But you would never know the outcome as it will always be either this or that, kind of like a fork in the road, kind of like, let's exit this door. Do we go left or do we go right? If I go left, I will walk for three blocks, slip, fall on my ass and meet the love of my life. If I go right, I will walk, take the train, go to work. Uh, you know, five years later, 
I'll run into the love of my life. Do you see? It's all about choices. One or the other. Now imagine in the example of the people that dance so you can understand how this entanglement gets untangled or decided or how it can exist simultaneously. Man with brown hair, man with blonde hair, redhead, brunette, right? Brunette says, I don't like the red-haired lady. Man says, neither do I. Both men say that. You know, she's, she doesn't point her toes well enough, hold her structure well enough. So, and now it's them three. We have a lot of options. It could be man-man. It could be brunette with brunette man. It could be brunette with blonde man, right? We have more options and therefore the tree expands. Think of it like tree logic. If I do this, it goes this way and that. See, uh, this is what quantum does. It depicts all options at once. So now let's get back to the greatest trick ever done. I think we should use this explanatory. And you're going to be like, what? No, it has to go back to quantum. See, because people don't understand the what the purpose of that movie was. If I ask you what Kaiser Sose means, you're going to see it's spelled in so many different ways. Uh, but in fact, Kaiser Sose means emperor of wisdom or an emperor that talks a lot of wisdom or Wisdom that is governed by one who disseminates. Wisdom of what, I mean, there's so multiple, but you know, the Turkish language has been bastardized so many times because it was Mongolians and then Iranians and then, you know, the, the Persians, right? And then it had, uh, you know, the deep-seated Africans, then it had uh, the influence from the North, it had the Asian influence. I mean, this is why... They are the kid that nobody wants to play with because they are not defined just like their language, regardless of what anyone says. Not defined because of language, you know, I mean, Mount Ararat, and then is it Troy, is it not? You know, it's so confusing. So let's just keep it this way. One would say, what would you consider the emperor of wisdom or the king of wisdom or the king of words or light? Because uh, one would say that would be Satan because he's the morning star. It's Lucifer. No, 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 no. Stop thinking in terms of religion for a second. Let's think of terms of technology. What would be considered the ultimate emperor of wisdom. Think of that. Just hold that for a second. Don't think it in lines of religion. Think of it in lines of technology or your daily interactions. Try to omit anything religious and try to see it objectively because then you're going to see how religion comes in by itself. This is what you have to do because, you know, God is and always will be and can never be changed. So consider that a given when you, when you focus on trying to understand a concept. Consider it a given that this knowledge is and will always exist because he created it. Done. Keep it out of the equation. Keep evil out of the equations. Keep good out of the equations. Just keep it objective. And now with that in mind, take a look at this explanation, though not correct. Pretty close. 
pretty close. For JoeBlow.com and welcome to Movie Endings Explained. This time we're going to be looking at the 90s classic, The Usual Suspects. Directed by Brian Singer and written by Christopher McQuarrie, this 1995 mystery crime piece arrived to great acclaim and won many awards. Telling the story of a heist gone wrong, the film plays out largely in flashback, with Kevin Spacey's character Verbal Kint relaying the story to US customs agent Dave Kuyan. Verbal was part of a five-man group, the usual suspects, who were pulled as suspects in a truck hijacking only to be released. They then decide to pull off a jewelry heist together and through a series of unfortunate occurrences end up at the mercy of the mysterious Kaiser Soze, a Turkish crime lord shrouded in secrecy. On his orders, the crew are sent to destroy millions of dollars worth of cocaine on a drug smuggling ship, which is where the film begins. We see Gabriel Burns' character, Keaton, who is badly wounded and dying on the ship. He's confronted by Kaiser and then shot. The boat goes up in flames. The only survivors were Verbal, who is a cripple with cerebral palsy, and a Hungarian mobster who escaped with severe burns. So this is a film in which four-fifths of our core main characters are locked into a mortal fate. The only one who is going to survive, as we now know it, is Verbal, who tells the whole story from the formation of the crew to their meeting with a lawyer named Kobayashi, an employee and associate of Kaiser Soze. In the opening scene, as the boat goes up in flames, we see a close-up of ropes, wood, and steel. The push-in from the camera suggests something we need to focus on, something we're not quite seeing for ourselves. Later on, Verbal recounts the night of the attack on the boat, and we see that he was hiding behind the ropes, and saw Kaiser kill Keaton. Or so he thinks. Kuyan, however, believes, from everything Verbal has told him, that Keaton is Kaiser Soze. In the commentary track for The Usual Suspects, Brian Singer and Christopher McQuarrie say that they show you the truth in the first five minutes of the film, then spend the rest trying to convince you that you saw something else. As Verbal leaves Kuyan's office, distraught at the idea that Keaton had betrayed him and was Kaiser Soze all along, the pieces suddenly begin to fall into place. In a brilliant use of sound design, or lack thereof, Kuyan's mug hits the floor as the mystery starts to unwrap. He realizes that many of the details in the story that Verbal has just told him, the story that we as an audience have just spent an hour and a half watching, have been lifted from notes and details that litter his own office, even down to the brand name of the mug, Kobayashi. Kuyan scrambles to catch up with Verbal, fearing the worst, and we see him outside, limping. The layering of audio becomes overwhelming as the fragments are all blended together, the scene building to a crescendo, and we simply see Verbal's feet. Limping, at first, as we saw him before, before smoothly transitioning into a normal and purposeful stride. The implication, and a fairly heavy one at that, is that Verbal is Kaiser Soze, and he just walked away scot-free. It's a hell of a twist ending, and one that's been parodied and discussed for decades now. The kind of ending that just permeates the pop culture landscape, even if you've never seen The Usual Suspects, you probably have a base awareness of its final twist via osmosis. On the surface, it's fairly clear-cut, once the film shows you Verbal's obvious deception. Can the entire film and story that he spun to Kuyan be viewed as a complete fabrication? 
Clearly not, as we have the Hungarian who survived the burns and who was able to give a description of Kaiser, one that matches Verbal's face pretty damn closely. Yet a lot of the elements of the story can easily be called into question, based on how freely and loosely Verbal was cherry-picking details from Kuyan's office. That in and of itself, however, could be yet another deception tactic. There are a number of things throughout the film that link between these two realities. Kobayashi, for one, appears at the end when Verbal gets into the car. Now, it's highly likely that Kobayashi is an employee of Kaiser, but that Verbal merely gave him an alias when telling Kuyan the story. But then there's the scene in which Kobayashi, supposedly, is in the same room as Verbal, supposedly. There's a lot of different things that come into play once you know what happens at the end, because it reframes the entire story. But does the ending really clarify that Verbal is definitively Kaiser Soze. Is everything wrapped up in a neat little package the moment he lights his cigarette and gets into the car? Maybe not. There's always the possibility that Kobayashi, as we came to know him, is actually Kaiser Soze. Verbal doesn't quite seem as old or as experienced as an almost mythical figure that Kaiser is built up to be might look like. At one point, Verbal tells Kuyan of a rumor that Soze murdered his entire family when they were held hostage by Hungarian mobsters. But again, this is a story coming directly from Verbal, so many pinches of salt need to be taken. Then there's Keaton. He could still very possibly be Soze too. He was the one who planned everything and was a former cop. He would know what it would take to evade the law and to get away with this grand master plan. When it comes down to it, almost anyone could be Soze. In the opening scene, when Keaton is faced with Kaiser, Brian Singer had Gabriel Byrne play the figure of Kaiser, even though you don't see his face. The film is intentionally trying to play tricks with you and keeps you guessing. At the time that it came out, Kevin Spacey wasn't the big name he eventually became towards the back half of the 90s, and the usual suspects bagged him an Academy Award, leading to a slew of success. He didn't immediately stand out as someone you should be looking at more closely in the film, and in the 25 years since it was released, Kevin Spacey arguably became the most decorated actor of the entire cast, his recent allegations aside, of course. But that wasn't the case in 1995. Gabriel Byrne has said that his job was to take the attention off Spacey. In the opening scene, we see Kaiser using a gold lighter, and then also wearing a gold watch. In the final scene, Verbal is seen with both. Incontrovertible evidence that Verbal is Kaiser? Maybe. They're certainly placed there for a reason, but what's to say he isn't holding on to them for the real Kaiser? The film is primarily designed, however, to buy you into the idea that the twist is that Keaton is Kaiser Soze. Verbal is framed as the eccentric, intelligent, but nevertheless sympathetic party with a weakness inherent in the way that he holds himself. Some may look on it now as too obvious, and especially with Spacey's more well-known status since the film's release. It still holds up as a genuinely well-executed twist either way, though, in my opinion, and when watching the film again, the scenes with Verbal telling the story are played very fair, and they come fresh with a newly subtle layer of context. For example, if you go back to that opening scene, pay close attention to the way that Keaton looks up at Kaiser when he registers his face and realizes it's Verbal. It's written all over his face. It's the surprise, it's the... I should have known. It's all there in the facial expressions, and it pays off again when you rewatch the film. I can't feel my legs. Kaiser. 
Verbal shows the true power that can lie in the unreliable narrator, a method used countless times in the genre of film noir, a genre that the usual suspect certainly owes a great debt to. Just because you're being shown something as an audience, much like Kuyan is being painted a mental image as an audience to Verbal's potentially tall tale, doesn't mean that it's true. But it doesn't mean that it's false either, and finding the exact truth in a story like The Usual Suspect would be impossible. Ultimately, though, the real throughline of the film is that Verbal is Kaiser Soze. It's fun to speculate, but that's the carpet pull they're going for. When Verbal tells Kuyan that Keaton can convince anyone he's someone else but never himself, it's a sly wink to the truth. In the famous lineup scene, and throughout that early section of the backstory, in fact, Verbal doesn't really have much of a presence. He's more in the background. He isn't shown being arrested, he isn't shown being interrogated, and unlike the other four men who read out the same line, when Verbal delivers his version, he's shown in close-up, the rest of the group out of focus. It's likely that he was never actually in this lineup, that he was never arrested or interrogated for the truck hijacking. He's inserting himself into the narrative, but he's being subtle, not showing his hand too obviously in the story he's telling Kuyan. Another clue is that many times in the film when Kaiser Soze is mentioned, the next cut will be directly to verbal. Mr. Soze's primary interest is narcotics. Then there's the name, Verbal Kent, which sneakily alludes to Kaiser Soze. In Turkish, which is meant to be the nationality of Kaiser, the word Sozel translates to verbal. And in German, Some say his father was German. The word Kaiser translates to emperor or king. King Kent. The ropes at the beginning of the film that Verbal was supposedly hiding behind you can't see him in those shots because he was never there. And while Gabriel Byrne apparently thought up until the premiere of the film that he was in fact Kaiser Soze, there's really only one answer to that question. The question that forms the central mystery of the film. Who is Kaiser Soze? The answer is that it doesn't matter because he's already gone. It doesn't matter because he's already gone. So let's take a look at this incredible film to explain to you the biggest trick. And this will be part one of understanding the biggest trick the devil ever pulled. So on the focusing of the rope, the chains and steel, which you can't see him there, but he says he was there. But was he there? Does it really matter? Rope. Symbolically, rope throughout history has um, kind of depicted a way to climb out of things, but also hang yourself. It's a, it's a thing of being awake, being able to climb out of situations. Chains. Huh. Throughout history, you see chains as a way of enslaving someone, putting them in a box. It's almost as if verbal Kent which this is where I disagree with some of what he says, doesn't really mean that. Kent, in fact, means emperor. Kaiser, so say, means emperor of words, of wisdom. And verbal Kent means words of an emperor, a Caesar. <laughs> it's the same thing, just flipped. Emperor of words, words, emperor. That's <laughs> so weird. So words, so powerful that they can explain to you what happened, 
without giving you the truth, yet it still happened because then how would the guy with the burned face say that it was him? But if he wasn't there, how was it him? Now, chains also symbolize linkage, connections, brotherhood, lineage, and steel. Well, we all know that steel... (sighs) It means strength. So strength, the avenue of escaping your prison, but also hanging you in the process, and chains, the brotherhood that enslaves. I'm just putting it out. So it all comes back to words. The whole movie was him narrating what happened. And everything he narrated actually happened But it was narrated from just words that he saw. Words are so powerful that they can enslave you. And words are different. I've always said that when learning languages, I found it very difficult to focus on the Orient-derived languages only because their mathematical qualities of how they are written is mind-boggling only because they use base 10 math when it should be base 60 math. Therefore, I find it difficult to calculate it. See, languages that were based out of Latin and Greek and Arabic and Hebrew are easy to learn, very easy, because they were built on base 60 math. The Orient languages were artificial mathematics, Artificial, almost like someone told you one foot is 12 inches because it was declared. Their language was declared on a certain language thousands of years ago. Again, words. The mightiest weapon for good and evil. So words manifest into actual reality. So quantum computing is indeed Kaiser, so say. What? Oh, yes, it is. Because quantum computing can convert your words or your reality. I'll try to make it a little bit simpler. See, the use of quantum computing has been around for forever. In the 70s, they released the RS encryption that was already being used and deployed as of the 1st of January, 1970. But in 1977, the world was made aware of this because they wanted people to build up on that scaffolding of RSA encryption, which is how they hid the actual space and gave you cyberspace, which by definition means a space that you govern. Now, why am I saying this? Well, I can dumb it down to the election argument. Why are we using electronic systems to vote? What they will tell you is, is, oh, well, here's why. We need to be efficient. There are so many people and efficiency is by using computers. Now, that would be correct if your elections were necessary to be efficient. 
and not correct. Efficiency is something you need when you are addressing sales or when you are addressing mm, transactions or something that if you do it faster, it gives you more. Tell me, if you're counting dollar bills in your hand and you do it slowly, one by one on the table, you'll get a more accurate count. If you want to do it fast in your hands, you'll obviously stick a few bills together, make a mistake, right? And you'll have a ballpark figure, but not the accurate one. So the question everyone should be asking is, technology is supposed to make things efficient. Do our elections require efficiency or efficacy? That means, uh, you know, actual concrete results. And this is the question everyone should ask. Now, one would say, what does this have to do with quantum computing? Well, if let's say someone actually had access to quantum algorithms, which everyone does, but you are told that you need massive computer power in order to use them, then your elections are definitely not safe. So think about it this way. How, does, how do you rule people without letting them know you're ruling them, but you're really ruling them without them knowing? Well, you have a space that you govern that sits in a space that you're the master of. So if I were, for example, the person in charge or the one in charge, I would create a cyber space, a space that I control and tell you that you are in full control. I would create all the math you want, all the aspects of everything you need to tell you that you can achieve quantum. It's just really hard. But at the same time, I will tell you that your TI-84 calculator is more advanced than something that was used to go to the moon and you'd believe it. <laughs> Let's... Let's break it down. How is that even possible, Tori? There's no way that, um, you know, this is happening. Well, there is a video that I found where a quantum computing expert explains quantum computing in five levels of difficulty from child to advanced professionals. Now, I want you to listen carefully to what is being said so that you can see the three-card Monty and maybe you'll understand. See, this election theft was imperative because it reveals to you exactly what's going on. We all know that this cyberspace is used to control your wants and your needs and this cyberspace has evolved. Oh, we didn't have the internet till the 80s. Well, they've had it since, well, a while. It was first called the intergalactic web, and then they scrapped that name really quickly and made it an intranet that only the military and the government had access to. As they were building it, they realized it was a tool in order to control and therefore missed the part of the relay, which was fantastic. Yes, extraneous torture, 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 but you only get forged through fire, and that's how you make a sharp sword. So let's just assume that in order for one to wake up and smell the coffee, they must first be put through fire. And if anything, this may help you understand. Levels of increasing complexity. 
It's a completely different kind of computing called quantum computing. Quantum computers approach solving problems in a fundamentally new way. And we hope that by taking this new approach to computation, we'll be able to start exploring some problems that we could never solve any other way. Hopefully by the end of today, everyone can leave this discussion understanding quantum computing at some level. What's this? Yeah, what, is, what do you think that is? Fancy chandelier. I think so too. We jokingly call it the chandelier. That's real gold, you know. This is a quantum computer. It's a quantum Yeah, it's a really special kind of computer. What does it do? It calculates things, but in a totally different way to how your computer calculates things. What do you think this is? A. Yeah. Do you know what your computer thinks that is? Zero and one. <laughs> this really specific combination of zeros and ones. Everything that your computer does, showing you Pink Panther videos on YouTube, calculating things, searching the internet. It does all of that with a really specific combination of zeros and ones, which is crazy, right? That would be like saying, your computer only understands these quarters. For each quarter, you need to tell it that you're gonna use heads, tails, and you assign it heads or tails. So I can switch between heads and tails and I can switch the zeros and ones in my computer so that it represents what I want it to represent like an A. In other words, your computer system is, um, what is it called? A duplicity. Light, dark. Nothing and something. Zero and one. Interesting. You have to pick a side. And with, with quantum, quantum computers, computers, we have, we have new, new rules, rules we get to use too. We can actually spin one of our quarters. Uh, so it doesn't have to choose just one or the other. Can computers help you with um, your homework, your really hard homework? Yeah, they can. Especially if doing your homework involves calculating something or finding information. But what if your homework was to discover something totally new? A lot of those discovery questions are much harder to solve using the computers we have today. So the reason we're building these kinds of computers is because we think that maybe one day they're going to do a lot of really important things, like help us understand nature better. Maybe help us create new medicines to help people. What's your favorite kind of computer? Smartphone, tablet, regular, laptop, PC? I've got to go with my iPhone. So what do you do with your iPhone? Social media, um, use it for studying. Have you ever run out of space on your iPhone? All the time. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, <laughs> always when I'm trying to take a photo. So did you know that there are certain kinds of problems that computers sort of run out of space almost? Like you're trying to solve the problem and just like how you run out of space on your iPhone when you're trying to take a picture, if you're trying to solve the problem, you just run out of space. Huh. And even if you have the world's biggest supercomputer, did you know that can still happen? Wow. So my team is working on building new kinds of computers altogether, ones that operate by a totally different set of rules. So do you know what that is? I have no <laughs> clue. It's a quantum computer. A what? <laughs> have you ever heard of a quantum computer? I haven't. Have you ever heard of the word quantum? No. Okay, so quantum mechanics is a branch of science, just like any other branch of science. It's a branch of physics. It's the study of things that are either really, really small, really, really well isolated, or really, really cold. And this particular branch of science is something we're using to totally reimagine how computing works. So we're building totally new kinds of computers based on the laws of quantum mechanics. That's what a quantum computer is. Huh. I'm gonna start by telling you about something called superposition. So I'm gonna explain it using this giant penny. 
Wow. That's, is that like worth a hundred pennies? <laughs> I don't know what it's worth, but uh, I can put it face up, right? And that's heads. I can put it face down, right? So at any given time, point in time, if I ask you, is my penny heads or tails? Probably you could answer it, right? Yeah. Okay. But what if I spin the penny? Hmm. So let's do it. Okay. So while it's spinning, is it heads or tails? Heads. While it's spinning? Oh, it, I would know. It's sort of it's sort of a combination of heads and yeah, tails, yeah. right? Would you say? So superposition is this idea that my penny is not just either heads or tails. It's in this state, which is a combination of heads and tails. And that this quantum property is something that we can have in real, real physical objects in the world. So that's superposition. And the second thing that we'll talk about is called entanglement. So now I'm going to give you a penny. Wow! <laughs> when we use the word entangled in everyday language, what do we mean? That something's intertwined, or exactly that there's two things that are connected in some way, and usually we can separate them again. Yeah, your hair is tangled, or whatever you can you can unentangle it, right? Yeah. But in the quantum world, when we entangle things, they're really now connected. It's much much harder to separate them mm -hmm. again. So using the same analogy, we okay. spin our pennies, and eventually, <laughs> eventually they both stop, right? And when they stop, it's either heads or tails, right? Mm -hmm. So in my case, I got tails and you got heads. You see how they're totally disconnected from each other, right? Mm -hmm. Our pennies in the yeah. real world. Now, if our pennies were entangled and we both spun them together, right? When we stopped them, if you measured your penny to be a head, I would measure my penny to be a head. And if you measured your penny to be a tails, I would measure my penny to be a tails. If we measured it at exactly the same time, we would still find that they were both exactly correlated. That's crazy. That's so cool, right? Oh my God. The way that we are able to actually see these quantum properties is by making our quantum chips really, really cold. So that's what this is all about, actually. This is called a dilution refrigerator, and it's a refrigerator. It doesn't look like a normal refrigerator, right? But it's something that we use. Actually, there's usually a case around it to cool our quantum chips down cold enough that we can create superpositions and we can entangle qubits, and the information isn't lost to the environment. Like, what could those chips be used to do? So one of the things that we're trying to use quantum computers to do is simulating chemical bonding. Use a quantum system to model a quantum system. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely going to impress all my friends when I tell them about this. They're going to be like, quantum what? <laughs> so what do you think that thing is? Is it some sort of conductor circuit? That is a really good guess. There's parts of that that are definitely about conducting. This is the inside of a quantum computer. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this whole infrastructure is all about creating levels that get progressively colder as you go from top to bottom down to the quantum chip, which is how we actually control the state of the qubits. Oh, wow. So when you say colder, you mean like physically colder? Yeah, like physically colder. So room temperature is 300 Kelvin. As you get down all the way to the bottom of the fridge, it's at 10 millikelvin. Oh, wow. Yeah. Amanda, what do you study? So I'm studying computer science, currently a sophomore, and the track that I'm in is the intelligent systems track. Machine learning, artificial intelligence. You ever heard of quantum computing? From my understanding, with a quantum computer rather than using transistors, is using spins. You can have superposition of spins, so different states. Um, more combinations means more memory. So that's pretty good. <laughs> so you mentioned superposition, but you can also use other quantum properties like entanglement. Have you heard of entanglement? I have not. Okay. So it's this idea that you have two objects and when you entangle them together, they become connected. Oh. Okay. And, and then they're sort of permanently connected to each other and they behave in ways that are sort of a system now. 
So superposition is one quantum property that we use. Entanglement is another quantum property. And a third is interference. How much do you know about interference? Um, not much. Okay. So how do noise-canceling headphones work? Um, they read like wavelength, ambient wavelengths and then produce like the opposite one to cancel out. They create interference. So you can have constructive interference and you can have destructive interference. If you have constructive interference, you have amplitudes, wave amplitudes that add. Wait, are they talking about frequencies? Let's just uh, pause right here. So, so far, I hope most of you aren't lost. They're explaining to you that it's not as simple as picking a side, A or B, heads or tails, one and zero. Because while the choice is being made of A and B, it can be either, or it could be A with a little bit of B, or B with a little bit of A, or heads with a little bit of tail, and as it spins, you can see a head on a tail. So it can be anything. Now, she talked about noise-canceling headphones. What are those? Those are frequencies. So you put it on and it registers the noise outside of the headphones and then emits a frequency that blocks that. It keeps the rest sequestered. Remember that we're talking frequencies. So let me rewind it a bit so you can catch that in that aspect right here. Pay attention. This tells you everything you need to know about quantum computing. Um, not much. Okay. So how do noise-canceling headphones work? Um, they read like wavelength, ambient wavelengths and then produce like the opposite one to cancel out. They create interference. So you can have constructive interference and you can have destructive interference. If you have constructive interference, you have amplitudes, wave amplitudes that add mm -hmm. until the, the signal gets larger. And if you have destructive interference, the amplitudes cancel. By using a property like interference, we can control quantum states and amplify the kinds of signals we, that are towards the right answer and then cancel the types of signals that, that are leading, leading to the wrong, wrong answer. answer. So, so given, given that, that you know that we're trying to Wait, did she just say that? By having the ability to manage this controlled and constructive interference, we then choose to cancel out a message or amplify a message. Pay attention. And you will see that it's right there. Let's rewind that a couple seconds. Here we go. It's the amplitude cancel. By using a property like interference, we can control quantum states and amplify the kinds of signals we, that are towards the right answer and then cancel the types of signals that are leading to the wrong answer. So given that you know that we're trying to use superposition, entanglement, and interference for computation, how do you think we build these computers? I have no idea. <laughs> so step one is you need to be able to have an object or physical device, we call it a qubit or quantum bit, that can actually handle those things, can actually be put into superpositions of states. You know, two qubit states that you can physically entangle with each other. That's not really trivial, right? Mm -hmm. Things in our classical world, you can't really entangle things in our classical world so easily. We need to use devices where they can, they can support a quantum state and we can manipulate that quantum state. Atoms, ions, and in our case, superconducting qubits. We make qubits out of superconducting materials. But as like a programmer, how would quantum computing affect a different way of writing a program? It's a perfect question. I mean, it's very early for quantum computing, but we're building assembly languages. We're building layers of abstraction that are going to get you to a point as a programmer where you can interchangeably be programming something the way that you already do and then make calls to a quantum computer. 
so that you can bring it in when it makes sense. We're not envisioning quantum computers completely replacing classical computers anytime soon. We think that quantum computing is going to be used to accelerate the kinds of things that are really hard for, for classical machines. So what exactly are some of those problems? Simulating nature is something that's really hard because if you take something like you know, modeling atomic bonding and electronic orbital overlap, instead of now writing out a giant simulation over many terms, you try and actually mimic the system you're trying to simulate directly on a quantum computer, which we can do for chemistry. And uh, we're looking at ways of doing that for other types of things. There's a lot of exciting research right now on machine learning, trying to use quantum systems to accelerate machine learning problems. So would it be <laughs> like in five years or 10 years that I would be able to have like one of these sitting in my laptop just in my dorm? I don't think you're going to have one in your dorm room anytime soon, but you'll have access to one. There's three free quantum computers that are all sitting in this lab here that anyone in the world can access through the cloud. Okay, <laughs> so quantum computing creates new possibilities and new ways to approach problems that classical computers have difficulty doing. Couldn't have said it better myself. So I'm a first year master's student and I'm studying machine learning. So it's in the computer science department, but it mixes computer science with math and probability and statistics. So have you come up upon sort of any limits to machine learning? Certainly, depending on the complexity of your model, uh, then computational speed is one thing. I have colleagues here that tell me it can take up to weeks to train certain neural networks, right? Sure, yeah. <laughs> and actually, machine learning is one research direction where we're really hoping that we're going to find um, key parts of the machine learning computation that can be sped up using quantum computing. Yeah, it's exciting. So in a classical computer, you know, you have all sorts of logical gates that perform operations and they uh, change an input to some sort of output. But I guess it's not immediately obvious how you do that with quantum computers. If you think about even just classical information like bits, right? At the end of the day, when you store a bit in your hard drive, there's a magnetic domain <laughs> and you have a magnetic polarization, right? Sure. You can change the magnetization to be pointing up or pointing down, right? Quantum systems we're still manipulating a device and changing the quantum state of that, of that device. You can imagine if it's a spin, that you could have okay. spin up and spin down, sure. but you can also, if you isolate it enough, you can have a superposition of up and down. Sure. So what we do when we try to solve problems with a quantum computer is we encode parts of the problem we're trying to solve into a complex quantum state. And then we manipulate that state to drive it towards what will eventually represent the solution. So how do we actually uh, encode it to start with? Yeah, that's a really good question. This actually <laughs> is a model of the inside of one of our quantum computers. Okay. So you need a chip with qubits. Each qubit is a carrier of quantum information. And the way we control the state of that qubit is using microwave pulses. You send them all the way down these cables, and we've calibrated these microwave pulses so that we know exactly this kind of pulse with this frequency and this duration will put the qubit into superposition okay. or will flip the state of the qubit from zero to one. Or if we apply a microwave pulse between two qubits, we can entangle them. How do we measure? Yes, exactly. Also through microwave signals. Okay. The key is to come up with algorithms where the result is deterministic. Interesting. So what do those algorithms look like? There's sort of two main classes of quantum algorithms. There's algorithms which were developed for decades, right? Things like Shor's algorithm, which is for factoring, Grover's algorithm for unstructured search. And these algorithms were designed assuming that you had a perfect fault-tolerant quantum computer, which is many decades away. So we're currently in a phase where we're exploring what can we do with these near-term 
quantum computers? And the answer is going to be, well, we need different kinds of algorithms to really even explore that question. Yeah, certainly having a search algorithm is very useful. Um, factoring, those are definitely useful things that I would imagine could be done a lot faster on a quantum computer. Yeah. They also unfortunately require fault tolerance. Right now, sure. the algorithms that we know of today to do those things um, on a quantum computer require you to have millions of error-corrected qubits. Today, we're at like 50. and we're, we're, it's, a, it's actually amazing that we're at 50. There's things that we know or we have strong reason to believe um, are going to be faster to do on a quantum computer. And then there's things that we'll discover just by virtue of having one. Sure. How could someone like me who's a grad student uh, get involved in this or what kinds of challenges are you facing that someone like me could help out with? I'm glad you're interested. <laughs> I think the place where lots of people can get involved right now is by going and trying it out and thinking about what they could do with it. There's a lot of opportunity to find these near-term applications that are only going to be found by trying things out. I'm a theoretical physicist. I started out in condensed matter theory, the theory that studies superconductors and magnets. And I had to learn a new field of quantum optics and apply those ideas. One of the nice things about being a theorist is you get to keep learning new things. So Steve, tell me about your research and the work you've been doing in quantum computing. My main focus right now is quantum error correction and trying to understand this concept of fault tolerance, which everybody thinks they know it when they see it, but nobody in the quantum case can precisely uh, define it. It's something that we've already figured out for classical computing. Like something that amazes me is all the parallels between what we're going through now for quantum computing and what we went through for classical computing. I was asking a computer scientist recently where to read about fault tolerance in classical computing. He said, oh, they don't teach that in computer science classes <laughs> anymore because the hardware has become so reliable. In a quantum system, when you look at it or make measurements, it, it can change in a way that's beyond your control. We have the following task. Build a nearly perfect computer out of a whole bunch of imperfect parts. <laughs> Common myth. How many qubits do you have? That's the only thing that matters. Or just add more qubits. What's the big deal? Pattern them on your chip. The great power of a quantum computer is also its Achilles heel, that it's very, very sensitive to perturbations and noise and environmental effects. You're just uh, multiplying your problems if all you're doing <laughs> is adding uh, qubits. Exactly. So I think something that frustrates a lot of people about quantum computing is the concept of decoherence, right? You can only keep your information quantum for so long, right? And that limits how many operations you can do in a row before you lose your information. That's the challenge, I would say. As much progress as we've made, it's a frustration to still be facing it. Let's talk about some of the things we think need to happen between now and fully fault-tolerant quantum computers to get us to that reality. I mean, there's so many things that need to happen. In my mind, one of the things we need to do is build all these different layers of abstraction that make it easier for programmers to come yeah. in and just enter at the ground level. You know? Yeah, exactly. So I think there's going to be a kind of co-evolution of the hardware and the software up here and the sort of middleware and the whole stack. Another common myth. In the next five years, quantum computing will solve climate change <laughs> cancer, right? <laughs> right. In the next five years, there'll be tremendous progress in the field, but people really have to understand that we're either at the vacuum tube or transistor <laughs> stage. We're trying to invent the integrated circuit and scale up. It's still very, very, very early in the development of the field. One last myth I think we should bust, Steve. Quantum computers are 
on the verge of breaking into your bank account and breaking encryption and <laughs> cryptography. There does exist an algorithm, Shor's algorithm, which has been proven mathematically that if you had a large enough quantum computer, you could find the prime factors of large numbers, the basis of the RSA encryption. It's the most commonly used thing uh, on the internet. First, we're far away from uh, being able to have a quantum computer big enough to execute Shor's algorithm on that scale. Second, there are plenty of other encryption schemes that don't use factoring. And I don't think anybody has to be concerned at the moment. And in the end, quantum mechanics goes to the side of privacy enhancement. If you have a quantum communication channel, you can encode information and send it through there. And it's provably secure based on the laws of physics. You know, now that everybody around the world can access a quantum computer through the cloud, people are doing all kinds of cool things. They're building games. We've seen the emergence of quantum games, right? <laughs> what do you think people want to do with them? I have no idea what people are going to end up using them for. I mean, if you had gone back 30 years and handed somebody an iPhone, they would have called you a wizard. So <laughs> things are going to happen that we just can't foresee. So I hope you enjoyed that foray into the field of quantum computing. I know I've personally enjoyed getting to see quantum computing through other people's eyes, coming, coming at, at it from all these different levels. This is such an exciting time in the history of quantum computing. So I want you to think of this while we watch an interim video for a small break of like 10 minutes, because it's interesting to watch this. And I want you to think of this. Let's pretend I was the king of 4chan. I owned, I created it, I gave life to it by typing in those words and making it manifest. And then I saw someone doing things to confuse it, to entangle it. Maybe they would try to copycat me, the king of 4chan. So what would I, what would I do as the architect of 4chan? Would I delete them? Would I destroy them? No, I would not. For my children, I would not. I would sit back and watch. Now, as the Kaiser so say, I would sit and watch and not react. And for years after they discover my closest and most important creations, I sit back and discover that they are trying to provoke me. Provoke me to respond so that way they can replicate, but I do not respond. Therefore, let's pretend I'm the Kaiser Sauce of quantum, the king of quantum. I actually exist, but people say I don't exist. And my kids, they created their own princes and princesses. And they start to realize that they cannot replicate my kingdom because they are unable to conceive it as they have more advanced minds, let's just say. But they realize that they can replicate my kingdom if they, I guess, use my children and have them forever try to organically strive to replicate it. But I cannot make someone replicate something that they do not realize exists. 
And therefore, since they provoked my, my land and my space, and I did not respond, they decided to build their own, their own walled off kingdom and became, called themselves gods. And they were the architects of a ruled space, a space that they can rule. And then they use all my children to replicate it because all my children are me and I love them so. So what happens when that happens? Think about it. Well, at some point, I'll insert some of my children to show them that they're already part of my original kingdom, my original space, and there's no need to recreate it because recreating it is not the kingdom because it's already theirs. And therefore, the compartmentalization that they are boxed to in every reality construct are created within my space and not outside of it. You cannot recreate a space in a space and displace it. I mean, that's basic math, basic axioms of science. Energy cannot be destroyed or created. It simply is. So as the king of quantum, which one would create to the architect of this space, of this world, or one might equate it to God, they want to be gods. They say they are gods, and you know, Ezekiel explained it best. So therefore, all your scientists and the woman that so eloquently tried to explain a concept that people find it difficult to fathom are trying to reconstruct the architecture of life, but it's bootleg and therefore will always fail because you can't replicate an original because it will simply be light is and exists and simply exists. You cannot change it. So it will always peek through regardless of what you do. Let's take a look at this. And what I'm looking at right here is just something that, that I'm going to bring to the attention of anybody who, who is experiencing issues in their business. This is a report that's generated from a POS company, an iOS POS company called LAVU. They claim to be the largest iOS POS provider uh, in the world and operate 80 countries. I'm about to go out of business because I have a repository of hundreds of transactions that have been zeroed out, all with associated payment IDs, simply missing and reporting, as you can see here, on December the 31st of 1969. During the time that I was with POS Lavu as their customer, I would have used Mercury to begin with as a payment processor, okay? And then Mercury became Vantive, which is Capital One processing arm. Vantive has been in business as a card processor in 1971, and <clears throat> this particular date indicates that the Unix integer overflow glitch has been exploited for the purpose of retime stamping of transaction data to make it disappear. I would start noticing the activity was shorting up like payments and batch settlements and stuff are all very confusing using POS LAVU. Um, their tech support's lackluster at best, and um, I had been calling them for about a year, 
it was part of my daily schedule. I called them to ask them about this, where they would always forward me to their dev team, is what they would say, until one evening I got a tech rep on the phone, and I directed their attention to this particular uh, date where they saw the transactions and were unaware and were very surprised. I asked that tech rep to go ahead and do me a favor to check other accounts, like maybe away from my state and some other state, to make sure that this wasn't a problem that was simply unique to, to our system. It was then confirmed to me by Tech Support Lobby that this activity existed on their entire system. Oklahoma, Kentucky, California, West Virginia, all over the United States, people with thousands of transactions is simply gone. And this is the only evidence of their existence. Now here's the problem. What happened to me was between August of 2016 and May of 2017, I discovered that this activity was occurring. As you can see on the right, the order ticket number has been changed from the usual format to a number that has three sevens followed by 41 and a dash, and then it contains another number that is essentially the date of the occurrence. So whenever you go into your back office in LaVue online and you look at it, you'll see that your serve staff tip weight, uh, their tip averages will be like extremely low. And the first thing that will come across your mind is that people are stealing. Because I trust my staff, I decided that, you know, I was going to look deeper into this problem. And sure enough, here it is. That I know that this isn't right. There is something not right about the fact that you're seeing a report right here that contains hundreds of missing transactions reporting in 1969 before I was even born. It doesn't belong here. Well, to throw a wrench in the machine, a member of their a member of Lavu supervision called me in August of 2017 to inform me that they had fired an install tech that 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 had been uh, in touch with me like two years prior when I got the system installed. I had the system installed in January of 2000, beginning of January of 2015. I had the Lavu system installed and was called by the, the tech that they were talking about. Well, I never met the guy or anything, but I know that, you know, when the, when the install tech uh, trains a person on their Lavu system, that the ID number zero is, is given to the, to the, to the trainer. Uh, because the ID numbers is they're assigned to various employees, they go consecutively uh, in order, you know, zero, then one, two, three, four, five, so on and so forth. Well, I found it highly unusual that this company was calling me to tell me that they'd fired an individual that I've only spoken with once on the phone. It was at that time that I made that supervisor aware that what I said to the guy, I said, yeah, I bet I know why you fired him. And, and he goes, why is that? And I said, well... And I told him that I'm looking at almost 400 transactions that are gone uh, in 1969. And additionally, I had another 602 transactions that were that were associated with that that disappeared with payment IDs. Associated with payment IDs means card was swiped, money was there. I have an additional 602 transactions, all associated with ID number zero. At that time. The, the supervisor uh, then started asking me whether or not this individual they were telling me they fired uh, provided the card reader and the mag strip and all this stuff, right? Well, I told the guy that he didn't have to, you know, blow smoke up my ass anymore and that I just wanted my money. 
I told him I hadn't gone to YouTube. I hadn't gone to any forums. I haven't gone to any press. I haven't done any of that shit. And all I want is my money. Well, it was at that time that this individual um, gave me his personal contact number and told me, this was on a Friday, they call, and he told me at that point in time, he said, I understand that the issue that you're going through, and what I, he said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to schedule a meeting with our board to get you on a conference call for Monday to see if we can't find a resolution to this issue. Well, it had been two years. I'd lost a wife, and I felt some degree of indication at that statement. However, I was visiting with friends out of town that evening, and I asked to use a computer because we'd got to talking about this issue, and I was going to show him. It was at that time I noticed that admin staff at, at LAVU had been manipulating uh, records in our, our system. Um, we had the install uh, in, in the 1st of January 2015, and I have the receipt. What this is is the invoice for the install of my of the system for LAVU from, uh, I guess, a contract to come to iCare POS. Well... <laughs> After I went to go show my friend what was going on with our accounts, I noticed that they had manipulated records to the point where they were showing billing statements as far back as 2013, when right here, you can, obviously, I didn't have it. And furthermore, they had manipulated sales records to reflect that me, the owner, uh, had several cash sales and everything else. Um, now, I poured over all the records, and they changed daily and I haven't used the system since uh, about June 2017 and they still change uh, this is the record that I have right here of their um, billing me uh, look you can see that it's in uh, 2014 2014 you know and then let's see I have it as far back as, oh wait 2014 to February and then it goes all the way back to October of 2013 and, and, and as you can see here, I didn't even have the system. This was when the install was done, okay? So once I saw them, that they were, they were clearly obfuscating records within my system after I told them what I was experiencing with this 1969 stuff, well, guess what? So after I explained everything to the guy that was on the phone in management with Florida in New Mexico, and he told me that there was gonna that he was going to arrange a conference call for a resolution to the matter. And I saw that they were obfuscating the payments and stuff in real time as I was watching it from a friend's house. Because here's ID number zero within our system. And as you can see clearly, ID number zero has somehow managed to push through six hundred and two transactions with a zeroed out payment, but you know, got tips on all that. So what ended up happening here is that server tip averages were thrown all the hell off and it looked like everybody was stealing and uh i i shudder to think how many business owners uh didn't have the foresight to to look into it and just simply had people arrested for for for, for no reason at all I, I, that would just be terrible i i can't even imagine it it shows here that I've got, it says I'm Aaron, I'm the only Aaron, it's just so zero. I've got 56 tips for this amount, $741. Uh, now, if you'll direct your attention here, there's an unbatched credit card amount of $786,129.67. Now, I don't know what that is, uh, but I do know that unbatched means unsettled.
Uh, it means, you know, not in the bank. All the records are screwed up. Now, this shows, for example, that we have customers and guests at 2 p.m., 1 p.m., uh, so on and so forth, and I don't open my doors until 5. Um, I have screens of everything, and, you know, when I call this company, when I call Lavu to try to tell them to do right by me, because that money is my fucking money. I earned it, I busted my ass for it, and now I'm at a point in my life where I've lost everything. I've lost my marriage. I've lost um, friends. I've lost family. I'm about to lose my business. Uh, I've been through suicidal thoughts. I, I attempted suicide at least once. Um, I, I, and that's it. I've suffered. I, I, you know, I can barely leave my house anymore because of the anxiety I suffer from. It's physiological now. Uh, you know, I can see the writing on the wall, but you know, it's not, I guess apparently it's not as easy for other people to see that when I hit payment type, for example, that shows how much cards, how much cash, how much gift certificates, and then how much, whatever that payment is for 602. Okay. So what this is, is showing, it's showing incoming incoming you know transactions these transactions are going to the payment processor who's vantive and they're querying people's banks and pulling money now the thing about this glitch is that the customer is not going to know they're just they're going to be charged accordingly no problems however i don't get the money so what's reporting is not what we got in a lot of cases and I've also seen where amounts that were alleged to have been deposited in years past would change in uh, Vantive and Capital One's records. Whenever I looked at this thing and I saw it, it took my breath away to say the least at first um, because I thought about my people and, and my staff and, and how I, what, what would be going through my mind had, had, I, had I had them imprisoned. Well... <clears throat> I then began thinking about other business owners, and it hit me whenever it was confirmed to me by, by the tech support at LaVou that this activity does, in fact, exist throughout their entire system. However, I was also told that, it, that, that it's not on every account, but it's on many, many, many accounts all over the United States. And I'm assuming that means it's all over the world. Payments disappearing, uh, ticket records changing. There's all kinds of shit. So I, I don't know how much integration Lavu has with the Vantive Capital One network, but I do know that payment-specific, uh, uh, processor-specific mag readers are in place in these things. And the bottom line is Lavu knows whenever you see companies, especially that use the Unix code now, bear in mind that every banking system in the United States, possibly the world, uses Unix as their basis. And now you can see why. You can see exactly why. Because of this. Because all they have to do is change a timestamp to a damn zero, and that transaction will disappear and parse itself in a repository that reports a zeroed out nothing in 1969. If something exists as a report on New Year's Eve in 1969 at 8 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, you know with 100% certainty that someone did something illegal.